Welcome to Conversations with the Legal Academy, a podcast from the University of Arkansas School of Law. My name is Brian Gallini. On this episode, Margaret Sova McCabe, the school's 13th dean, discusses her research interests and transition to Arkansas from New Hampshire. McCabe was named dean after a nationwide search during the 2017-18 academic year. We talked in September of 2018, roughly three months into her new role. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Dean Margaret Soba McCabe, welcome to the University of Arkansas. Thank you. <laughs> I've been here, what, two months? Yeah. <laughs> it's great to be here. How do you like it so far? I love it. Great. Both the university and Fayetteville. Northwest Arkansas is a great place. Well, for our listeners, mm-hmm. let's give them a little bit of your background and how you ended up here. Well, that I don't think we have enough time in this podcast. <laughs> so I'll, I'll do the summary version, <laughs> which is... I had served as associate dean after being on the faculty at UNH Law for several years. And as associate dean, I did a lot of different administrative things, enjoyed that work. We got to a point where we had a new dean, Megan Carpenter, who was a terrific hire for us. And I decided, in air quotes, since you can't see me, that uh, (laughs) I was done with administration and went back to the faculty and was there for just the first semester when uh, Dean Leeds decided to step down. I really wasn't thinking about being a dean at the time other than having a short list of kind of attributes of a deanship that might be attractive to me should I decide that I want to do that at some point in the future. (laughs) But I've been well aware of the University of Arkansas through Professor Susan Schneider's work in food and agriculture law for quite some time. And so this university was on my list. And I really, I I talked with a few people about whether the school was as strong as it appeared on paper. And I got you a unanimous yes from the people I consulted. And I thought, well, I think I will apply. (laughs) I don't know a thing about Arkansas, the state, but I think I'll apply because it's a great school. And um, at this point, we can say the rest is history. Yes, (laughs) yes, we can. So you you mentioned your association with Susan Snyder. Mm You two have similar research interests. Mm -hmm. Will you tell us a little bit about the research you do? Sure. When you Um, have tons of spare time (laughs) to do research now. So let me go back to Professor Schneider because she's somebody who took the time a long time ago to meet with me when I was a junior faculty member with an emergent interest in food and agriculture law and give me some advice about that because it really grows out of administrative law for me, not for everybody. For Mm -hmm. some people it's environmental law, for other people it may be human rights around farm workers and things like that. But for me, it was administrative law. So Susan took some time during an AALS conference to talk with me about my research interests. My very first article was actually about regulatory and emergent legislation to try to address childhood obesity. So there were things that we then called health report cards, information going home from the school nurse to a parent that a child was obese, for example, and whether or not that was an appropriate way to address obesity. And so Susan got me thinking about that, and so I decided to pursue that as my first article topic. And then that kind of mushroomed because childhood obesity was a real issue, and a lot of people were trying to think about, well, how does law have a positive impact on pediatric health. 
And so I have written about things like labeling, stoplight labeling, which began in Europe, which would signal to consumers with a red, yellow, or green light whether or not a food was healthy choice or not. And we have adopted some of that uh, through private means in the U.S., meaning there's no legislative mandate. Also have written in the areas of dairy and similar ideas around labeling and how consumers perceive products, uh, food products, and what's fair and what's not when it comes to labeling. That has eventually evolved into, because of GMOs, a greater interest and one that I continue to want to pursue even though I'm busy <laughs> as a dean. Um, we have a really difficult relationship with science in the regulatory space right now. I, I don't need to say a lot about whether climate science is accepted by the government or not. I think we've seen enough to know that it's really been questioned. And so where does science influence our regulatory system is a question that I'm looking at. I'm very concerned about the fact that the Administrative Procedure Act and many related laws intend to create a process that allows not only public input, but allows decision-making based on sound science. And that we are debating what sound science is, is healthy, but some of the conclusions, I think, are more, more directed towards eliminating the use of science in government decision-making, which, of course, is of great concern. <laughs> That's yes. startling. <laughs> it, it is. Um, it is. And there, there's lots of evidence of that, and it will likely continue. But again, for listeners, you know, just think about what you've read in the popular press about climate science. And you, you, I hope, are intrigued and thinking about how your decision makers, whether elected to Congress or appointed in the executive branch, how do they think about science and how does it relate to their decision making on important legislative and regulatory issues? That's really interesting. There's a there's a lot, there's a lot to, there. Yes, there's a lot to mm -hmm. unpack there. Mm -hmm. Well, it addresses it's everything from food and agriculture law, right? When we think about genetically modified foods, or how might we how might we think about environmental regulations in the agricultural space, all the way through to the kind of funding decisions that are made at NIH or CDC based on community-based evidence and community-based research, and some of that being brushed aside mm -hmm. by this administration. So that's, it, yeah, it, it touches almost everything we do because, again, for listeners, think about how do you think your government makes a call between competing regulatory proposals? You hope that it's not pure politics. You hope that there are, you know, there are facts, and particularly if there's science and research, whether that's economic data or public health data, that decision makers use to guide our choices. So enough said on that. Okay. <laughs> well, let's switch gears ever so mm -hmm. slightly. What brought you into academia, teaching and research, as opposed to practice? It's such a great question. Um, I am not somebody who necessarily intended to join the academy. Once I did, I loved it. I, if you had asked me way back, probably about 19 years ago, I would have said, you'll find me in private practice or back working for the government for my entire career. Due to family circumstances, I stepped out of private practice, but still had a real need to be intellectually engaged. And I was just fortunate to be reading the New Hampshire Bar News and to see that they were looking for a legal writing instructor. 
I uh, was on Law Review, the Ocean Coastal Law Journal at the University of Maine. I loved editing. Um, I've always loved writing. Mm -hmm. uh, so I thought, well, I'll try that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it turns out that through great people at the University of New Hampshire that was then Franklin Pierce, I had really great mentorship around teaching. And I found that I really loved teaching. And over time, that evolved from part-time, you know, I think one or two sections into my interest in, in teaching administrative law. And I thought, well, I'll try that. But that's when the conversation with Susan Schneider happened. I thought, I really like writing. And why am I not writing? I'll try it. <laughs> and the next thing you know, I'm writing law review articles, teaching a broader array of classes, and starting to dip my toe into administration. So I can't say it was a deliberate decision. I really respect the people who have thought about that in law school and said, I'd like to be a law professor. But honestly, that wasn't me. We have a mix. The, the people <laughs> I talk to for this podcast, it, it, it goes back and forth. And I think that makes the academy stronger, right? If we were right. all of just one mind and just one pathway into the academy, our students would not benefit, nor would our scholarship. That's a good point. Just to clarify one thing, you had mentioned the university or the law school you originally went to work for. Let's talk about that combining of private into public, not in depth, but just <laughs> do we have to? No, <laughs> I'm just I'm just teasing. Um, it was actually a really terrific decision by then University of New Hampshire President Mark Huddleston and then Franklin Pierce Law Center Dean John Hudson, who realized that in a small state like New Hampshire that had one law school and with challenging headwinds coming for private independent law schools that to combine forces might be a good choice. And it really was a terrific choice because the University of New Hampshire's law school, as Franklin Pierce, is known globally for its strength in intellectual property. It is just an amazing story of the founding of a law school by an inventor who mm -hmm. wanted to make sure that patent law was focused on the inventor and the protection of their intellectual property. And if you can imagine the mission of today's land-grant flagship university, to have that kind of law school and to have it be the only law school in the state, it was a well-timed decision because it also allowed the law school to weather some really difficult downturns in legal education. So I was happy for all the experience I got, maybe not going through it, yeah, but now. Looking back. <laughs> it's, looking just, back. <laughs> it's just such a unique experience. I mean, to have a law school go into any university is, I would think, challenging. But to have a private law school go into the public land-grant flagship campus, it just fascinates me that that actually, that y'all pulled that off. That it worked. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm sure there are people that may say it was, you know, it wasn't comfortable. It yeah. was a ton of change um, for both campuses may be made easier by the fact that one of the reasons we were attractive to UNH was that we have a beautiful campus location in Concord, New Hampshire, which is the state capital, which is where our federal and state offices are. And there is a lot of employment and activity in Concord. So it gives them kind of a, a locus for activity within the state capital that they didn't have before. But yeah, really challenging, especially that the ethos of the schools, you could say, were very different. 
but they are also both in New Hampshire, and New Hampshire is the live free or die state, <laughs> yeah. and they do share that DNA as schools, and I think that that allowed them to succeed in the combination of the two schools. That's great. So we talked a little bit about your path into academia. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about your path to law school. <laughs> I laugh because it's kind of like my path into the academy, <laughs> but really um, there's one person who I wish were alive to hear the retelling of the story as many times as I've told it. I was a senior at Bard College. It was the fall. I was preparing to apply to two PhD programs, both focused on marine policy. Um, I had done a lot of uh, work as an undergraduate with real interest in international management of our ocean resources, both from the environmental and the economic standpoint. So I had a very dear advisor, a guy named Professor Dick Wiles. Um, he was in the econ department. I, he became my advisor, frankly, when I went to Bard because my original advisor, I was going to be a French major, had not returned yet from her summer in France. Okay. And a registrar said, go see Dick Wiles. He helps everybody. <laughs> and so I went to see him, and he was as lovely as the registrar might have suggested and became very important to me while I was at Bard. But what he said to me was, we were talking about PhD programs and the application process and where I was, and he kind of pushed back from his desk and he said, do you want to teach? I said, no, I do not. <laughs> I, I want to do. I want to be, I, I would like to probably work in D.C. or somewhere globally on ocean policy. And he said, have you considered law school? And I, I think I laughed at him, yeah. and, I, and I said, you know, no, there are no lawyers in my family. Um, I'm not sure that lawyers are helpful to the work that I'm trying to think about <laughs> doing in my lifetime. Yeah. And he said, I really want you to reconsider that, and sent me off to, I think, you know, kind of a career services office to learn a little bit more about law school. I had two friends at the time who accompanied me to a law fair in New York City, and we all laughed that this is not what we wanted to do. Why are we even looking at this? Took the LSAT, uh, really only applied, I think, to two or three schools, and one of them was the University of Maine because it had the Law of the Sea Institute. Mm -hmm. And they were really, uh, a woman named Professor Allison Reeser was really a real driver in the development of scholarship and, and thought around American ocean and you know policy on the high seas. So, you know, kind of, there's another case. The rest is history. Yeah. Um, I decided that maybe if Professor Wiles was telling me that a PhD program would really limit me to university teaching or pretty meager existence at, in a, you know, nonprofit working against really big forces in the world to change ocean use policy, <laughs> then maybe a JD would be okay. So. Um, it, the thing that I would say about law school for me and people who enter it in that way, if you love thinking, if you love writing, it's the perfect choice in terms of a, a degree to pursue because it does give you so many options and it really does hone your thinking and your writing. So given your experience, say there's someone listening right now who is considering going to law school, whether they're an undergrad right now or whether they're a stay-at-home mom right now or wherever in their life, retired from a medical practice, I don't know, what, um, what advice would you give to them about deciding whether or not to go and the process of getting from that point to your 1L year? It's a great question. I 
think the advice I would have for anybody considering law school is uh, probably threefold. Number one, why do you want to? If you're thinking that it is a way to create economic success for you or for your family, that's one way in. But that's not the reality of law practice today. People can be remarkably successful, but being in it for the money, probably like anything, it's not a great motivator because the, the second thing is I would ask people to reflect on how much can they really commit to a program of legal education because it's intense. And the third thing I would ask somebody to think about is just do they enjoy, to the intensity point, do they enjoy challenge? Because I think the people who get the most out of law school are those that are really willing to take the risk, to jump in, to be uncomfortable with a new language but master it. And if, if you think it's going to be easy or kind of a part-time endeavor for you, something you just add to an already busy life, it can be, but it's not satisfying in that way. So on the way to law school, I think people just really need to reflect on their motivations and what they expect from the degree. And then my final point would be a fourth point. Law is really critical in society, right? You, you, Dorinda, you've heard me say that <laughs> rule of law is essential to a functional democracy. It is democracy. And that that, I think, needs to be, I hope that's a motivation for anybody going to law school to have the privilege, frankly, of being an officer of the court or somebody in society who understands how democracy works. It's a great thing to do for yourself, mm -hmm. but it's also a great thing to do for your community. It's the only way we get along. It's so, true. And, you know, rules. court isn't always getting along, but, yeah. you know, at least we resolve the disputes in a fair and equitable way. That's the whole point. Makes sense. So by the same token, what kind of advice would you give current law students, the ones that are in the thick of it right now? Oh, my gosh. I, I think the, my favorite thing to tell law students when they say, but it's so hard, is to say, what's wrong with that? You know, we have this sense of, oh, if it, you know, it should be easy or it's something that I'm not going to enjoy. The challenge of law can be really enjoyable, and I, I want law students to embrace that. Yes, it's a lot of hours. Yes, it can be totally confusing, especially as a 1L. You, know, you do your first few weeks of reading and you think, I have no idea what's going on. But you will eventually get there, and, and the challenge is one to be met, not one to kind of have, you know, want to avoid or to seek out easier classes. Or, I mean, as lawyers, if it's easy, you probably don't want it to come across your desk in some sense. People aren't seeking your counsel and your, your skills for a solvable problem. Mm -hmm. So this is, this is a career full of both creative and challenging thinking. And the more we embrace that in law school and with law students, I think the more excited they can be about their career too, instead of just feeling tired <laughs> during <laughs> law school. You'll feel tired, but if you understand that the challenge is worth it and it's enjoyable and it can be fun, even though it's really hard work, I think you can get yourself through that class that you don't love or push yourself to do that last piece of reading and master it, or sometimes read that case for a third time in your first year because you still don't know what those words on the page mean. Yeah, that makes sense. 
That's good advice. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you for your time. Oh, you're very welcome. Music for Conversations with the Legal Academy was written and performed by Josh Woodward. To keep up with us between episodes, follow the University of Arkansas School of Law on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching for UARC Law. That's U-A-R-K-L-A-W. Thank you for listening.